0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, October 12th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we dissect the final Buy American guidance out from the White House. Plus, this Transportation Department team secured a billion dollars in refunds for airline passengers, those stories are much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a federal career executive who helped rethink office space for government employees is stepping down. Nina Albert, commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration, is leaving the agency in federal service on Friday. Albert appeared before several House and Senate committees this year, and there she faced bipartisan calls to make better use of federal office space and get rid of space agencies don't need. Here with a review, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. I guess it's fair to say, Jory, she had a really tough job in the COVID remote working and all of this mess period that we've just been through. And so let's hear more about Ms. Albert.
2: She had a very important job that became more important at this point where we were really broadly figuring out what federal office space was therefore, and what it meant to the federal workforce, and just how much of it we needed at a very pivotal time as employees were more comfortable with telework since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still trying to figure that out. On top of all that, Albert was also trying to do the day-to-day stuff, like the design and construction of new federal buildings, leasing Buildings across the country and getting rid of these buildings that GSA no longer needed for its tenants across the federal government. And, you know, in addition to all of that, also getting federal buildings prepared for COVID 19 mitigation efforts. And if that wasn't enough, overseeing nearly $7 billion in new investments under both the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Some of the projects we've seen more recently come out of that is rehabilitating existing buildings, making them more energy efficient, and also revitalizing some ports of entry
1: across the country. And who's going to be taking over for her?
2: We have heard that Elliot Dooms, a GSA regional administrator, will be taking over as the next PBS commissioner. It's an appointed position, not a Senate-confirmed one. So he'll immediately be taking over when Albert steps down.
1: All right. Imagine coming into a job to take over federal buildings on the very moment they all get evacuated because of a pandemic. That's a a tough assignment, I guess, for Ms. Albert. Speaking of consolidating federal offices, How's that going? Is there any progress among agencies?
2: I think you could say that we're definitely in the early stages of that. GSA did help support agencies looking to do that kind of work. They were testing out some co-working spaces across the country and all the major metro hubs, giving agencies and federal employees across those agencies an opportunity to all work in WeWork-style spaces. And they also try to encourage this you know new exciting era of hybrid work through its Workplace Innovation Lab, giving agency leaders an opportunity to test the furniture and technology that enables that. But again, early stages here. And to really underscore that point, Nina Albert just a couple of weeks ago spoke before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. She said that this is just, of course, an issue that's relevant now, the idea of consolidation, but this is something that has been challenging for a while. Over the past nearly decade, she said that there have been 120 missed opportunities to consolidate federal office space and that this is, again, an ongoing challenge. The opportunity before us is to transform the federal real estate portfolio into a high-performing and more efficient portfolio than today's inventory. I like to say that we want better buildings, but fewer buildings.
1: All right. So that's got to happen. And what does GSA need to make this happen, actually?
2: Well, to make Albert's vision of better buildings, but fewer buildings possible, what they've asked Congress for, in addition to its annual appropriations, is full access to the Federal Buildings Fund. This is the pot of money where agencies' rent payments ultimately get collected. And that's a multi-billion dollar pot of funds that GSA normally has access to, uh, except for a little bit of things. Congress, since 2011 has skimmed about a billion dollars off the top of that fund and have used those funds to pay for other agencies and other federal appropriations. And that's not insignificant amount of money for GSA. Albert said that Congress siphoning these funds off has led to delays in investing in federal buildings and actually making them in a good enough condition to uh, consolidate or to get rid of. We have seen minor issues grow into more costly repairs and replacements. It's also delaying consolidation plans, forcing the government to carry space that is underutilized while we wait for funding to complete work allowing for tenant relocations.
1: Yeah, that gets to an important point that might be overlooked here, I think, Jory, is that it costs money initially to consolidate space. You can't just move people into dirty old leftover space and move people around. There's moving expenses. There's renovation expenses. There might be lease buyouts that might save you money in the long run. But in the meantime, you got to get out from under the landlord. And so... I think that might be misunderstood by Congress or just overlooked altogether. And when an agency wants to give up real estate, that's not so easy either, is it? No,
2: because, again, we're at this very uncertain time where this fall and in the coming months, we will see more federal employees return to the office. This is a administration wide focus. The Biden administration, through its Office of Management and Budget, is really strongly encouraging this because at the end of the day, what nobody wants is underutilized buildings and what to do about it. You can really go one of two ways. You can either put federal employees in those buildings, make them use it more, or sell off those buildings and say, all right, well, the future of work is more telework and remote work friendly. It's really one or the other, or a little bit of both. And, you know, it's not so easy. And I think David Maroney, who is over at GAO, he's their acting director of physical infrastructure, he said that. Agencies, much like GSA, have pretty limited budgets to reconfigure or consolidate office space. And in this uncertainty, they're not going to make big moves that they can't take back sooner rather than later. But he did say that this does add up to real costs.
3: Every dollar an agency spends on extra space is a dollar they don't have to spend on other priorities. And for local economies, unneeded federal space could potentially be put to more productive uses. To be clear, figuring out how much office space agencies really need and shedding any they don't won't be easy, quick, or cost-free.
1: Yeah, we've learned that over the decades. And, of course, there's federal buildings and there's federal buildings. Some of them are historic and monumental. Some of them are just pedestrian buildings the government happens to own, which nobody cares if they dispose of. But the least space, that's a big bugaboo because that's the most fungible space that you have because you can get out of it without a sale. And so... What's the conditions, what's the status of GSA's leased office space?
2: You know, this is the one area where I think GSA has the best success story to tell, because Going forward, more than half of GSA's leases are set to expire in the coming years by 2027, and these usually happen in waves here where a lot of these leases come up at the same amount of time. And in recent years, we've seen GSA capitalize on talking to agencies when these leases are coming up, having those conversations of saying, look, how much office space do you really need? Is this office space still the best that you need to do your mission. And if it's not, let's have that conversation. And so over the past five years, GSA has saved about $6 billion by eliminating these unneeded lease spaces. And Albert said this is the one tremendous track record that GSA has that they really want to keep this momentum going forward.
1: Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his retrospective story about Nina Albert and her work at GSA at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this Transportation Department team secured billions of dollars in refunds for airline passengers. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Few experiences, at least in the civilized world, are worse than airline screw-ups. Flights that take off hours late if they take off at all... Passengers forced to sleep in cold, noisy airports, but a team of the Transportation Department has managed to get compensation for thousands of passengers, and now they're finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Senior trial attorney Rob Gorman joins me now. Mr. Gorman, good to have you with us.
4: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: And we should point out that Blaine Workey and Jessica Illich are also your co named co conspirators here in the Sammy's Award. <laughs> But uh, you're the one we're speaking with. And what did you actually do here? Because it wasn't clear that the airlines were obligated to pay people if a plane never took off or whatever. And yet, I think it was last year, we had a series of horrible delays that grounded the air traffic system for tens of thousands of people.
4: Right. The SAMI award went to our team, which is the uh, Office of Aviation Consumer Protection within the Department of Transportation. And we're a team of... About 20 to 25 lawyers and another 20 to 25 non-attorney analysts who take in complaints from passengers and analyze them and determine whether the airlines have been breaking our consumer protection laws. So we were nominated this year for our work on helping passengers to receive refunds for flights that were canceled or significantly delayed by airlines, mostly beginning during the pandemic. At that time, airlines were canceling flights at massive rates and not providing refunds to consumers. So immediately after the pandemic, our office put out a notice saying to airlines and to consumers that it is uh, what's known as an unfair or deceptive practice for airlines to cancel flights and not provide refunds, whether that cancellation was for any reason, including COVID, and that we expected airlines to provide refunds post-haste.
1: Isn't there fine print language in your carriage agreement, if anyone ever reads that? It used to be the Warsaw Convention was printed on the back of paper tickets, but they don't have those anymore, mostly not. So did the law support you? That is, was there enough statutory authority in place that you could demand these refunds?
4: Well, we do have statutory authority from Congress to investigate and prohibit and order airlines to cease and desist from engaging in what are known as unfair and deceptive practices. So what we did in 2020 is to define what unfair and deceptive practices are, and we did so by using essentially the same model that the Federal Trade Commission had done with definitions of unfairness and definitions of deceptiveness. And we also said that if we went after airlines or ticket agents for the things that we believed were unfair or deceptive, that we would use those definitions. And so the definition of unfairness, as we set it out in our rule, was that it is a a practice that imposes substantial harm on consumers, that the harm can not be easily avoided by the consumer's own self-help, and also that there is no countervailing benefit to consumers because some practices may impose some harm on one side, but there's an overriding benefit to consumers in some other way. And it was relatively easy to explain, I think, that canceling a flight, not providing the service that you promised that you would provide, and most importantly, keeping people's money is unfair. Certainly from the passenger's perspective, uh, the passenger has already paid for that flight. The airline did not provide that service, and it's certainly not the consumer's fault. They couldn't avoid that problem because the airlines were the ones who canceled the flight And there was certainly no other benefit to consumers in doing that. So that was the argument that we made when we had to take a case to uh, an administrative law judge against Air Canada because uh, Air Canada was not settling our enforcement action with them. And shortly after we filed that case, Air Canada came back to the negotiating table and we negotiated an agreement to settle that case for a civil penalty
1: We're speaking with Rob Gorman. He's a senior trial attorney at the Transportation Department. He, along with Assistant General Counsel Blaine Werke and Director of Consumer Advocacy Jessica Illich, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And just, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems like, yes, it's definitely an unfair trade practice to take money and not render the service. But isn't it also contract law where both sides enter into an agreement when you buy a ticket and there's consideration but no service. Could that have been a route to this?
4: No. And that's simply because no company is allowed to write illegal terms into their contracts. So we would say that that term of a contract, if it was in a contract, would be void and unenforceable because it's effectively illegal. And
1: so how much in refunds were you able to get over and tell us the period of time?
4: Well, since the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020 to roughly today, we have helped to ensure that over $2.5 billion in required refunds were returned to consumers.
1: Wow. And you also got some fines against airlines as well. What was the basis of that and how much came in that
4: way? The fines were imposed as parts of uh, consent orders that we have entered into with attorneys. And we have had a number of enforcement actions uh, against airlines. So we imposed civil penalties thus far of over $15 million and $21 billion in required refunds.
1: And would you say that as a result of this team's action over the COVID period, and then we've had some horrible situations since then, has changed, I don't know, the culture of the way airlines Treat passengers. Do you think they're just generally more inclined to say, gosh, we didn't fly anybody anywhere. We have to give them their money back.
4: I certainly think so and certainly hope so. Yes.
1: And what's next on the agenda for the team now that you've kind of got that situation licked? I guess there's no shortage of complaints about airlines.
4: There are no shortage of complaints, and the department is working on a number of new rules. We are very proud, by the way, we also have a civil rights section to our office. So we also write and enforce the disability rules for passengers. And we're very proud to say that just recently we issued a final rule that will require wheelchair accessible bathrooms on single aisle aircraft. And that is a game changer, I think, for passengers with disabilities, that they'll be able to have in the future a uh, wheelchair accessible bathroom on large single aisle aircraft. But on the consumer side, we're also working on a number of different rules, a family seating rule, a rule to help to ensure that the fees that airlines are imposing are transparent, Things like seating fees, baggage fees, all of the fees that you see, that they're transparent and easy to understand. We're also clarifying our refund rules. So we have a lot in the works in the near future.
1: Anything you can do about legroom?
4: Legroom tends to be within the FAA's jurisdiction. You know, FAA is, of course, part of the DOT but they tend to handle legroom issues. All right. Rob Gorman
1: is Senior Trial Attorney at the Transportation Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And he, along with Assistant General Counsel Blaine Werke and Director of Consumer Advocacy, Jessica Illich are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the intelligence community is making work in secret rooms a little more homey. But first, we dissect the final Buy American Guidance out from the White House. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm
0: Dave Wintergren, CEO of act and I'm delighted to be the host of Accelerating Government with act where every episode you'll learn about the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market and hear valuable insights from senior government and industry leaders. Times of change are times of opportunity. So please join us for our next episode of Accelerating Government and be better positioned to not just survive, but thrive in the rapidly changing world we face.
1: Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. When Congress passed the so-called bipartisan infrastructure law two years ago, it also strengthened Buy American requirements for construction projects. Now the final guidance is out from the White House on the BABA part of the law, Build American, Buy American. Analysis now from Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney, Dan Ramish. Dan, you found that because of the new guidance that's been out about a month or so, it's a little bit more confusing about what construction contractors and buyers from the government side are supposed to do. So tell us what's going on.
5: So, Tom, the final guidance... There was hope that it would clarify some of the points that came up in the proposed guidance, which was issued back in February. But I think many in reviewing the final guidance issued last month, which goes into effect October 23rd, will find that, in fact, it's more complicated. Because one of the central things that OMB did in the final guidance was indicate that This new section of the uniform guidance applicable to federal grants and cooperative agreements and other assistance agreements is not going to be a one-stop shop for recipients or construction contractors or subcontractors that are trying to figure out what their Buy American requirements are they're going to have to go and look at agency guidance and other OMB guidance. So uh, OMB got a bunch of questions about things that weren't addressed in the proposed guidance. And by way of addressing those questions, they said, well, we issued this implementing guidance in a memo, M-2211, and that memo is going to stay in place. That's why we're not addressing everything in the Uniform Guidance Section 184. So it's not going to be possible for construction contractors just to look at the uniform guidance or recipients or awarding agencies to know what the requirements are. And these are complicated requirements. There are three different categories. Really, we're talking about all of the articles, materials, supplies that are going into a construction project that's funded by a grant or cooperative agreement. So it's manufactured products, construction materials, and iron or steel products, these three categories. And there are separate tests for each of the categories. And the final guidance made some changes in the margins about, you know, some of the standards for construction materials, added a few additional construction materials that'll fall into that category. There weren't major changes substantively, but the big changes were saying that OMB is going to keep the old guidance in place. Awarding agencies have to do more to issue additional guidance for their own programs and grants.
1: If you're building a bridge under a grant, say your estate or you're doing a bridge under the Transportation Department, bridges have steel. That could have one requirement, but that requirement could be subtly different from, say, I don't know, another agency, HUD, say, granting housing improvements, which also might have steel in them, and HUD could have different guidance than Transportation Yes.
5: Each agency's own requirements and the types of materials that will go into their projects and the specifics of their programs will differ. One of the complexities is that some agencies had existing by America statutes. So the various DOT instrumentalities, the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Transit Administration, already had some statutes that imposed by America requirements. And so that was one of the big questions for the proposed guidance. OMB said, there are some areas where even those agencies with legacy Buy America requirements will have to follow the new guidance. There's a waiver process that's specified in the BABA Act and in the final guidance. Construction materials weren't covered under those old statutes. And so even the agencies that had Buy America requirements are going to have to incorporate new elements from the final guidance. Another major area of concern has been trade agreements. So the state and local governments aren't covered by the WTO GPA automatically, but many states have opted into trade agreements And so one of the questions was, well, if there's a trade agreement that says we can't discriminate against the products of our trading partners, how is that going to factor into these Buy America requirements? And that was a topic that wasn't addressed in the proposed guidance at all. And that's one of the areas where OMB said, well, we had this initial implementing guidance that said you can seek a waiver based on public interest if you have a trade agreement that is in play. But that doesn't totally solve the problem. If you have to get a waiver every time you need to purchase something from a trading partner, that becomes very onerous. So far, there's a website that posts all the waivers that have gone through under the IIJA, and there have been a total of 35 waivers, and some of them are pending, haven't even been approved yet. So there's going to be a real issue if every instance where a trade agreement comes into play, they need a waiver. There are practical questions that have yet to play out.
1: We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. I imagine in some cases the only sources available might be foreign. I mean, I-beams is generally a commodity that comes from Korean steel mills, Japanese steel mills, and I don't know where else. But they come from American steel mills, I think, still, but they're more expensive. And I wonder if the public interest would be the price. In other words, would a grant or cooperative agreement tolerate a 30% price differential because you bought it from a American supplier and you could have saved a lot of money getting the raw material from overseas and maybe the fabrication done locally.
5: Right. So you're raising uh, some natural points and they're in line with the way the guidance is set up. So the details of the waiver issue are one of the things that's actually addressed in the old memo M-2211, which by the way, OMB said they're going to update the memo to keep it in place because they made some changes in the final guidance and they want the Documents to be consistent. But there are three bases for waivers, and this is consistent with how it's handled under the FAR. You can get a waiver if the item is unavailable, you can get a waiver if there is public interest uh, in waiving the requirements, and you can get a waiver based on unreasonable cost. But the unreasonable cost waivers are pretty difficult to obtain. Really, all of them are pretty difficult to obtain. Traditionally, a a federal awarding agency would be able to make some of their own determinations in this area. But now there is a Made in America office out of OMB that has to generally approve waivers, which adds additional scrutiny in granting
1: them. Sure. And is there anything in any of these requirements for union labor? Because the administration has made no bones about the fact that it favors union over management federal government is no longer the referee here. It's on the side of unions. Those are more expensive shops. Is that addressed at all in the guidance?
5: So not in this guidance, but you're right that labor doesn't get off the hook on this either. We spoke actually on a previous program about the Davis-Bacon and related act requirements. So between Davis-Bacon and the Build America, Buy America, both the labor and the materials and supplies Are really regulated heavily going into these construction projects. And so as we've talked about, there's a lot of money in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, but companies that are signing on for new construction projects who may not have dealt with the federal government before are going to have a lot of things to get up to speed on in how they're approaching both their labor force and supply chain.
1: So to bring this all around then, the people affected, then, are not so much federal procurement people because they're not actually doing the buying. This is money mostly from federal funding to other entities that actually do construction. So who has to be on their toes here and mind their P's and Q's? Is it the grant-making authorities in an agency? Say, I'm making a grant, and you're going to build this bridge. If there is actually anything built like that under the infrastructure law, but let's presume there is one somewhere, then it would be the grantor part of the agency – that would have to get the proposal and ensure its compliance from the grantee. Is that basically who's affected here?
5: So yes, the state and local governments that are receiving grant funds will need to be aware of these rules. The awarding agencies also have some obligations under the rules. And construction contractors that will actually be performing the work on the ground need to know about these rules because it takes some advanced planning to be able to source these kinds of materials. And one important wrinkle that came out of the final guidance. So if a for-profit entity receives a grant itself or a more commonly a loan or loan guarantee, which is other forms of federal assistance, under the Build America by America Act and the final guidance, for-profit entities that are direct recipients of assistance aren't supposed to be covered automatically. However, there were nonprofits that raised their hands and said, well, this is going to put us at a disadvantage competing for funding against for-profit entities. And OMB came back and said, well, under the uniform guidance, there's authority for agencies to decide to apply the requirements to for-profit entities as well. And we've been hearing about instances where awarding agencies are imposing these requirements on for-profit entities, sometimes at the last minute. So that's got to be something that construction contractors on, are on the lookout for, that this requirement doesn't sneak
1: into their award. Somehow, I think the infrastructure is going to continue to grumble <laughs> under all of these rules <laughs> before anyone builds anything. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the all-American Federal Drive on your made-in-China device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the intelligence community is making work in secret rooms a little more homey. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Working out of a sensitive, compartmented information facility, you know it as a skiff can feel downright restrictive... But intelligence agencies are looking at ways to make the SCIF life a little more flexible. And the Intelligence and National Security Alliance is out with new recommendations for improving the classified work life. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with former National Security Agency official and now INSA's Executive Vice President, John Doyon.
0: I think COVID-19 forced the leadership of these organizations to knock down some cultural things that have been occurring in these agencies for years. Such as there's a reluctance, even if it's unclassified information, there's a reluctance to discuss it in emails that are on uh, the internet, just regular, you know, Gmail or personal email. There's a, a preference to doing all of your work, whether it's classified or unclassified, in a secure facility. Communicating, whether it's an unclassified or unclassified on a high side email system that's 100% secure up to top secret and beyond. There's a lot of cultural issues around where we're comfortable, where there's almost no risk when you're operating in that type of environment of having information spilled. During the pandemic, leadership had to find ways how to reach out and start to engage their workforce in unclassified ways. And from NGA moved really swiftly on this, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Uh, NSA, DIA, CIA, everyone all of a sudden was scrambling, how do we even contact employees who are being told to stay at home? How can we contact them? We don't have ways that are, you know, industrial strength for the organization to, to do this well. So that started to challenge the concept that all work needs to be done in a SCIF. And then as the pandemic went on for weeks and months, how can we productively use the time of employees outside of the SCIF to do meaningful work that's still related to their national security job?
6: So obviously, SCIFs are going to continue to exist. The IC is now going to go to 100 percent unclassified telework going forward. That's just not going to happen. But what are some of the ways that this white paper suggests agencies could make the SCIF life a little bit better?
0: Well, we do have some uh, recommendations in the paper, and some of those are You know, a SCIF, the audience may be familiar, some may not be familiar. You are not allowed to bring a mobile device or a cell phone into the SCIF. You, in some cases, have difficulty accessing unclassified email or or even internet while you're in the SCIF. And so uh, one of the recommendations is around very practical things of, hey, how can we have more internet zones where the employee can easily go perhaps take a break during lunch, check some text messages, check their cell phone, have a nice, have secure places for these, have a place where you're uh, just can't store the device, but you can actually use the device where you don't have to go to your, sit in your car. That's one example. Um, There could also be ways where, you know, is access to unclassified email should be Allowed, you might need to check and see if your doctor's appointment is canceled, or your child's, or your a caregiver for your parents. There may be communications that are um, come to you uh, through an internet portal. And you might say, "Well, there's phones available in the office. You can always pick up and call on a phone." The only way I can reach reach my personal care physician is through the portal, online portal, through email. Nobody seems to answer the phone, and so. This is where we are with technology today, and we need to make technologies like internet access and places for people to use their cell phone available to employees.
6: And then there's also this idea, which is probably a little bit of a longer pole in the tent and brings in the CIO shops and some of the big goals they have, but just improving the technology within a SCIF to make it a little bit more similar to... What's available in the commercial world is that, you know, we're talking about using Slack before we started this conversation, just being able to use the things, the software that is available on the outside.
0: Exactly. That's another one of our recommendations is to really look at amping up the technology and the workplace. A good example there is, um, you know, there may be cutting edge tools available and easily and readily adopted in private industry. But you've got a higher bar if it's gonna be in a SCIF, if it's gonna be on a secure network, you need to test it out. You need to get authority to operate an ATO through your security apparatus. There may all, you know, there may be other features of these cutting edge capabilities that maybe require two-factor authentication with a mobile device, and all of a sudden, well, you can't have a mobile device in the SCIF. So there's uh, workarounds, and then all all of a sudden, one of these cutting edge new technologies that's off the shelf has to be custom reconfigured to be in in the skiff, and then the cost is too high, and and there's a lot of issues. So we should be able to find ways to work through these issues, and that's one of the the recommendations uh, as well. And also, you know, one of the themes of the paper is more and more information. Uh, is available, publicly available through the internet. How can employees access that? And a lot of times it's to do your mission. And so I've seen people frustrated that they can be at home and they can access fabulous data that's available online, but to get that downloaded or uploaded into a secure network, there's a lot of obstacles. And the mission, therefore, is negatively impacted um, because we don't have all of the tools uh, available to employees that are available outside the SCIF.
6: It's, it's a great point. It's always a part of this conversation around you know how to improve life for employees just within the government, but especially within these secure facilities where there's those extra requirements that might be holding technology back. And then you know I thought it was a really interesting recommendation around universal device registration. Talk, talking about you know the medical devices that a lot of folks use nowadays in the fitness tech of course. What were you looking at there when it comes to maybe allowing folks to con- just continue to use those devices that are such a big part of life nowadays?
0: Well, for medical devices, there really needs to be some clear guidance. These are, you know, from people who have different types of heart monitors or other types of medical devices, they've got to be able to enter into skiff areas and skiff workplaces. And have the ability just to go in like everyone else and not have to be sent off to a special room for a special scan every time they want to enter or exit the building. And kudos to the IC. I understand there is a new policy that's been drafted related to medical devices and it's out across the intelligence community now for a comment and hopefully will be implemented soon. But that's a key issue. And also the fitness tech, you know, we talk a lot about work-life balance and we want our employees to embrace wellness and, and have from good mental health to good physical health to Uh, good habits. And one simple thing is, you know, those Fitbits uh, devices. And I remember about uh, eight years ago, those were the the simpler uh, Fitbit devices were allowed in the hallways at the National Security Agency, but they were not allowed in the hallways of other buildings, for example, at, at CIA headquarters. So if you went to CIA, you had to remove your Fitbit device. So each agency has its own separate policies and uh, once again, there should be some way that we can find some technical uh, solutions to this that allow and promote uh, employee wellness and well-being and how we can use these devices that support that and how we can register them and make the employee responsible for a responsible use of these devices.
6: It's an interesting recommendation. Uh, and then, and then the other one that's really interesting and has popped up, uh, I think, in Insa's work a, a couple of times in the past few years, is around this idea of a WeWork for IC employees. You know, uh, classified faci- shared facilities. Um, can you explain the idea there and how that might help advance uh, just you know the workplace culture and, and and accessibility and things like that for the IC?
0: One thing that everybody talks about in the D.C. metro area after you say, hi, my name is John. And, you know, you work here. People say, well, how's your commute? You know, if you're required to drive to a specific facility to do your work because you need to be on a classified network that's in a secure building. I understand that. Um, But what if you could access that same classified network in a secure building that might be closer to where you live? Um, and you might be there with colleagues from other agencies um, who are doing the same. This is an idea that's been talked about for a while. We certainly have the technology that can allow us to do this. We should be able to figure out how to actually make it happen. And there's even, um, you know, there can be examples. For for instance, what if you have a house and you're down uh, uh, and you live close to Charlottesville, Virginia, And your workplace is all the way up in Northern Virginia someplace, and you need to use a classified facility, perhaps even one day a week, if you could go to, you know, a closer, something closer to your house. I know the National Ground Intelligence Center is right there in the Charlottesville area. Perhaps you could go um, do work there uh, one day a week. And it would, you know, it's again, it's it's an issue of work-life balance. What can we do? To help the employee still do their job, but maybe they don't need to be in team meetings and other things where you need to collaborate face to face. Maybe they could do that classified work from a you know sort of a WeWork skiff facility.
1: John Doyan, executive vice president of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance (INSA), speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Hear more episodes of Inside the IC at federalnewsnetwork.com. Army platforms depend on software, and software has to run on sometimes old or limited hardware mounted aboard ground vehicles. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I discuss what's going on with the commander of the Army's Communications and Electronics Command, Major General Robert Edmondson II.
3: I'm a part of a team of 9,000 IT professionals distributed around the globe, and we are responsible for all of the sustainment, which is the sustainment operation of all of your command, control, communications, computers, information, surveillance, reconnaissance equipment. So you do software and hardware? We do both hardware and software, absolutely right. All right. And would you say sustainment?
1: Let's define that term.
3: Right. That's, that's a great question. So when I think of sustainment, uh, I think of an Army operation. And so when I think of sustainment, uh, I think of the different classes of supply. And much like weapon systems, much like ammunition, uh, I literally, with the team, we consider both the hardware and the software components of all C5ISR how they need to be replenished, how they need to be prepared, uh, repaired, and how they need to be sustained over the long haul. We work anywhere from the defense industrial base uh, all the way into the foxhole.
1: Got it. And that C5ISR, that used to be C2, then it was C3, then it's C4,
3: now it's C5. And, and, and one day it's probably going to be something else, because this is an example of how the Army is continuing to evolve. And frankly, CECOM, in response to how the Army is delivering the Army of 2030, designing the Army of 2040, uh, CECOM, that's a part of AMC, will continue to evolve over time. And uh, as you've already noted, uh, our acronym has changed over the years. Uh, At this point in time, uh, the the synergy between hardware and software is probably no greater uh, than any point in my entire Army career than it is today.
1: And to a much greater extent, it's fair to say that a lot of the CCOM software is embedded in the platforms, which creates a different type of integration challenge than the days when it was pretty much a signal faced all of this work.
3: Right. Absolutely. And uh, now when you look at all the different systems that we have, those systems are not designed to operate independently anymore. Those systems are designed to operate in an integrated fashion, not just interoperable, but to be operate in an integrated fashion, which means that we need to be able to, as in the United States Army, and specifically secom over the long haul, synchronize the level of hardware with the level of software so that at the tip of the spear, at the point of need for the soldiers, the system works the way that it needs to work when called upon.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, publicity, a lot of talk has been about this replication program that the Defense Department announced, but they're talking mostly about aerial unmanned types of vehicles. But the Army has an ongoing program and, I think, development of unmanned ground systems, which you don't hear as much about, but those have to operate in concert, the swarm idea, if you will, that's part of your software development thinking
3: also? When we think about the entire network, uh, the entire network includes soldiers, uh, it includes unmanned capabilities, uh, and so to your point, when we need to integrate all of those systems, uh, it is the Army Material Command, the secom Enterprise, that has the right level of experts distributed around the globe, and that's extremely important. That they are distributed around the globe, embedded with uh, maneuver formations. At times, they are full-time, distributed around the gro- globe, living. Uh, living on the ground, and they're the ones that are able to operate at a higher level. So if a soldier ever has a challenge, and this is extremely important, if a soldier ever has a challenge with any of the hardware or software, they know exactly where to reach, and and that's reaching into the AMC Enterprise and reaching into Communications Electronics Command and reaching directly to some of the 9,000 experts that I had previously mentioned.
1: But as an operational concept, I mean, the Army is thinking about interoperability of manned and unmanned ground vehicles such that an operation could, could have drone things on wheels or walking or whatever they might do, we, we are that they ab- all communicate as a unit.
3: Yes, a- absolutely. The integration between manned and unmanned is absolutely something that the Army is working hard on. It's something that we completely understand. Uh, why not leverage uh, unma- an unmanned capability to perform an action that can be performed by an unmanned uh, platform? And that lends leaves the tasks that soldiers must perform to the soldiers, the living, breathing Americans that are the ones that we are here to, to support, the ones that we ask to uh, put their lives in harm's way at times. So we are absolutely aimed at decreasing their risk, using unmanned where appropriate, uh, and then again, leaving those ethical, moral decisions as an example to the humans.
1: Right, autonomy will never extend to shooting, for example, right. so far as we can plan right now.
3: Right, We've, we, that, that's a human decision.
1: And that gets to the question of artificial intelligence and machine learning, that must be coming big time into CECOM.
3: It, it absolutely is, and we are, uh, we are searching, there's a race for talent that's happening today. And so we have very smart hardware engineers, we have very smart software engineers, uh, we, have, uh, we have educated our hardware and our software, and I'm going to come back to software uh, and, and focus a little bit more on them. Uh, we are educating our software experts uh, in, in agile ways of delivering software capabilities. We are enhancing our lab capabilities so that we can uh, roll out software at a faster rate. Uh, we are synchronizing that uh, rollout of hardware at a faster rate with the software that we are also are responsible for sustaining as an operation. Uh, and then when we start to talk a little bit more about Uh, AI and ML. Uh, That's where we are very excited. We're very interested. We're reaching out to industry. We're reaching to the local colleges and universities. We're taking a very close look at our duty descriptions and, quite frankly, determining who is it that we need to hire. What type of person do we need to bring into our organization that can continue to perform sustainment operations of hardware, software, AI, and ML?
1: And talking about the workforce, you mentioned 9,000 people. How many Are uniformed?
3: How many are Army civilians? And what about contractor support? How does that all break down? Right, right. So of that 9,000, 92% of the 9,000 are civilians. And of the 92%, we've got about a 50-50 mix between contractors and Department of the Army civilians. And so the soldiers that we have in the organization are more senior in nature. They're the ones that we will uh, have been most recently in the field. We will bring them into the organization. We will leverage their talents so that we can continue to be forward-looking. And then we also can take good constructive criticism from the soldiers when they come into our organization. They give us advice as to how we can do business even better. And so, again, that allows us to operate in a more end-to-end fashion. So, in other words,
1: you don't have uniforms coding in python necessarily that's civilian people
3: in our organization we do not have soldiers coding in python army i can't speak for army futures command i'll let them speak for themselves but our soldiers today are not coding hands on keyboard
1: and i was wondering about your connection or uh, relationship with something like say missile command which is very software intensive ground systems and networking and all of this
3: how do you interact with them do you have any part of what they do and We absolutely do. We have a close uh, partnership with all of the product managers, with all of the product managers, the PEOs, and uh, we coordinate... We have uh, formal lines of communication and informal lines of communication. So the systems that you're you're referencing, we have a direct responsibility in ensuring their sustainability over time. So we're involved early in the acquisition cycle. We're involved early in the acquisition cycle from the perspective of our ability to sustain that equipment over time. And when I say sustain the equipment, I literally mean our ability to uh, perform sustainment operations uh, at the speed of war. Because the
1: hardware, you know, has a long life cycle and it has to be ruggedized and so forth for the most part for Army platforms. And so I imagine a lot of the future software sustainment has to be, you have to ensure that it occurs in a way that can still be supported by hardware that might have been around a while.
3: You're absolutely right. There is a a, a dependency between hardware and software that cannot be lost. And that's part of our end-to-end way that we perform sustainment operations inside C-COM. Uh The end-to-end, again, takes us from the very beginning of the development all the way to uh, how the system, the hardware and software functions for the soldier uh, on the battlefield. And to your point, uh, the synchronization uh, of the hardware and the software is what we do inside communications electronics command along with our partners uh, that uh, are in the PEO and the PM community. But the synchronization is critical. We cannot put ourselves in the position of having hardware that is not able to run the software. Conversely, we cannot allow software to outpace the hardware, and that's where we're responsible again. That 9,000-person workforce that I described a little bit earlier – they do a tremendous job of synchronizing uh, Army hardware with Army software for the soldiers.
1: Yeah, you don't throw out the software every couple of years and get a new iPhone, so to speak. That's this is stuff that has to be around a while.
3: Right, and, and and the risk tolerance associated, the difference between an iPhone and a combat <laughs> platform, right? We, we cannot assume that kind of risk at all.
1: And what about the feedback loop, say, uh, of the field back to CECOM? Someone might have a new package that's... Uh, to update the operation of a tank. I'm just making this up. Well, you know what? We told it to turn one degree and it turned 1.1 degree. You have to reprogram something. So that, have that, that feedback mechanism. We, we,
3: we absolutely do. We receive the feedback two different ways. Uh, one is we'll receive the feedback from the PMs and they'll sometimes ask us to make modifications to hardware or modifications to software in response to feedback from the soldiers. But we also, as a part of that 9,000 person workforce, We have Department of the Army, civilians, and contractors that work for us on the ground with the soldiers uh, receiving that direct feedback, and they bring it directly into communications electronics command. And so that uh, the information flow is not only from the PM to CECOM, but it's from CECOM back to the PM. What's the E2E pipeline? The end-to-end pipeline has everything to do with our ability to be able to think not only at the headquarters and above level or at the lab and above level, but it is our ability to take ownership of the hardware and the software all the way into the foxhole uh, and to be responsible for the systems that we are sustaining, the systems that we are upgrading along the way to ensure that they are functional for the soldiers, the soldiers understand how to operate those systems. And so as an example, before we will issue a new piece of software, we've got a responsibility to write the technical manual that describes to the soldier, the user, what the new process is and what the new benefits are. And when you're thinking end to end, that means you're not stopping at the lab level alone. You're not stopping at the PhD level where we're putting hands on keyboard developing new, new types of software, but you're actually thinking about how you're gonna implement all the way into the foxhole for the soldier. And to have that ownership, really does get back to your earlier question about how do you receive feedback. You're going to receive a lot of feedback when you really take ownership uh, of your software in an end-to-end fashion. And if there's a bug or a glitch, you'll hear about it pretty quick. Absolutely. Absolutely, we will.
1: Major General Robert Edmondson II, commander of the Army's Communication and Electronics Command. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.